Welcome, friends. Good to have you here. Welcome, Lou. Uh, good to be here. A interesting subject coming up here, and uh, uh, I think it's going to be an eye-opener for most of us in the Western world. Yes, it's uh, something very close to my heart and something that I promise you is going to blow your mind. You do not, most of you, if any, don't know this. And I have done a lot of research, and you should too, so you can confirm what I'm saying to you. Uh, the title is The Indian Holocaust. And Holocaust, as you all know, means and refers to a massive destruction um, such as a population or like a genocide or forests or stuff like that. So here I'm talking about upwards of 37 million people being killed in India during the British reign in India. Something that m most, many don't know. They blame it on the famine, famines over the years, but there have not been these kind of famines prior to the British coming there. And now with modern science, we're able to tell that these famines were not the re reason for these massive deaths. And this is something that I came across quite by chance and I followed up on it and I suggest you do too. So this is of such great importance that I'm hoping that this gets to the ears of some journalist or somebody who takes it to the next level and promotes it so that more people are aware of this. And whatever you as the listener can do, please forward this to somebody who can take this to the next level. Um, this ne memory needs to be kept alive. This is already in my, I'm in the, my mid seventies and in my lifetime, from the time I was very young and living in India to now living in the United States, I can see that memories of such things are disappearing right in front of my eyes, like disappearing ink on paper. Hmm. Um, it's a tragedy and it's going to take me more than just today's one episode to tell you about this. So please bear with me. You have all, I think, many of you have seen the movie Gandhi mm -hmm. with Sir Richard Attenborough. If you haven't, it won eight Oscars, I think, and you should see it. It starts off with the father of, the, in, of India, Mahatma Gandhi, who everybody has heard of, walking with a stick with lots of followers behind him approaching a british um, line with soldiers and absolutely still having no violence within gandhi or his followers and the british soldiers attacking them with sticks and cracking open their skulls and people just falling down and but more and more waves of people coming and that was called the salt march have you seen the movie lou no i haven't it's really worth seeing, really worth seeing. I mean it. Okay. Um, anyway, it's called the Salt March. And I grew up with this. Um, everybody knows that Gandhi's march at that time, which was one of the fulcrums, one of the main reasons why India got its independence. <clears throat> so they say, I have a different uh, take on it, that the British had already bled India with everything that they were going to get. They weren't going to get any more. There was nothing more to take, so they said, fine, we're leaving. 
and also the United States was putting pressure on them to leave and World War II was by that time over, 1945. So 1947, they left. Um, but the salt march I heard growing up and everybody around me talked of Mahatma Gandhi's walk and march called the salt march. Question is, why, what is this salt march? The salt march was to force the British to lift what was known then as the salt tax. What is the salt tax? Have you ever heard of a salt tax in a country that is momentous and great enough that it would cause people to take notice? I mean, everything gets taxed. Your salt that you buy today gets taxed, but at a minimal cost, so you don't even know. This was taxed at such a high level that people couldn't afford salt. So what I'm going to be telling you today, not today, perhaps in the next episode, is what deprivation of salt causes and how it causes death. This is, as a physician, I didn't know it, and I can assure you that the majority of my colleagues are not aware of it. You have to actually research it, and it's something that you can research, and I would suggest that you do it, um, and I'll give you the name of the book that I, it's called, I'll give you the name of the book in which uh, th this is described the physiology, the anatomy, uh, and everything else that is going along with salt deprivation. So let's back up first to why the British came into India in the first place. What was India like before the British came in? So the British actually came when India, and we've talked about this, Lou and I, in our episodes to say that India was a very advanced country prior to the 1600s and the advent of the British. British India had universities, colleges, lots of education. They were experts with every field that you can talk of. They did meditation, they were, uh, they were philosophers, um, they were inventors, scientists, and in terms of religion, they produced the first religions that the world ever had, which was Hinduism and uh, Buddhism, Sikhism, yoga, meditation, etc. Um, interestingly, there's a person by the name of Angus Madison. Angus Madison did a survey of what countries were like and their GDP going back hundreds of years. And Angus Madison said that in the 1700s or prior to the 1700s, before the British came in, <clears throat> excuse me, the Prior to that time, India was the richest country in the entire world and had hmm. been for time immemorial until the British came, the richest country. This, it produced 23% of the entire world's GDP. Wow. 23%. That's a huge number. 23% of the world's GDP was produced by India. That included all of Europe. That is greater than all of Europe combined. Um, by the time the British left, India's GDP contribution to the world was less than 3%. Hmm. From being the richest country in the world, it became the poorest country in the world. Not only that, health-wise, India was extremely healthy. All the Indians, the population was extremely healthy prior to the British coming there. By the time they left, the standard of health uh, was very, very poor. They were extremely unhealthy, malnourished, etc. 
So a little bit of history. In England was a feudal state. Feudal means there's a king, a monarch, king or a queen, and under that monarch, there are people that do the work, farmers, etc. And in return, they're given pieces of land uh, to serve, and they're uh, they are loyal to the monarch in return for this what they do. They give, they will toil the farms, and mm -hmm. they get this piece of land. Uh, so it was a feudal country. In the 1600s, early 1600, or actually in the year 1600, a company was called called the East India Company. This was yeah. founded by a charter by Queen Elizabeth I in 1600. It, and because at that time they realized that there was a way to get to India, and India was this very, very rich country. It was called a golden uh, bird. Every country wanted to get there if they could. England, Portugal, Spain, France, uh, all of these countries wanted to get there and get a piece of the action. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with setting up trading posts in India. And East India Company, founded by uh, the, a charter under Queen Elizabeth I, set up East India Company and they went to India and they set up these trading posts around, around the coast of, of India. One of the people there was this uh, man, young man called Robert Clive. This is an interesting story in and of itself. Robert Clive was 17 when he went to India as a clerk. And he worked in uh, what is now what was then called Madras. And Madras, he worked there. And in 1756, an important year, the Nawab of Bengal said, enough of these uh, white guys, the British, <laughs> yeah. get them out of here. So he drove the East India Company out of its Calcutta trading post and said, get, get out of here. I don't want you. That was the Nawab of Bengal. Robert Clive, who has been described as a juvenile delinquent when he left from England because he was uh, always in trouble mm -hmm. and very aggressive as a fighter, took up the mantle, took the British flag, and actually went and fought with um, the Nawab of Bengal when he pushed the uh, East India Company out of Bengal, out of Calcutta. And he won in this battle, which is famously known as the Battle of Plassey. He fought the Nawab, he won, and he got the Nawab uh, off the throne. In return, instead of putting himself, Robert Clive, on the throne, because he was a Britisher, he'd get in trouble with the British government, because don't yeah. forget, he was still under charter from Queen Elizabeth, and the government took a big chunk of profits from East India Company, but he wasn't totally in charge. So he put this person called Mir Jafar, Jafar, Mir Jafar on the throne. Uh, my grandchildren watch Aladdin on Disney TV, and there's this evil guy called Jafar. Mir yeah. Jafar was put on the throne by Clive. And what Clive, very shrewd, did was he had Mir Jafar pay him 2,340,000 rupees. This and other things that he got made um, Robert Clive the richest man in the world at the time. Mm. Um, at least in England. In India, there were still very rich people at the time. But 2,340,000 rupees as a down payment, they gave it to him, plus rentals of over 300,000 rupees per year. And he took for himself 
a estate, a private estate for his own home, which was 880 square miles. Wow. Think about that. I mean, right now from Boston to New York is like 300 miles, right? Yeah. Takes me three to four hours to get there by car at like 60, 70 miles per hour. And that's still not 800 miles, 800 square, 880 square miles. That's how big the property was that he took for himself. At age 32, he became instantly the richest of all Englishmen. And he was a very shrewd guy. He continued to do all kinds of shrewd things. And in 19, so that was in 19, sorry, 1757. Two years later, 1759, Robert Clive and the East India Company, here's where it starts, acquired the land on which were the Calcutta salt works. They were making salt. And they were getting, East India Company started getting rent from the salt works. And the Robert Clive doubled the rent. And now they were getting one-fifth of one rupee. Look at the how minimal these things are. One-fifth of one rupee for 82 pounds of salt. Hmm. And yet he got 2,340,000 rupees. That was 1759. He started to see that there was money in salt. Mm -hmm. In 1760, Clive went back to England and he said, I am so rich and I can continue to bleed India to get money. I am going to, the only thing that can stop me is not the Indians because I'm in control over there, but the British parliament because they're going to, people were starting to say, what the heck are you doing? How yeah. did you get to be so rich? And ultimately they said, you made a pact with the devil. You're doing some evil things over there, which he was. So what Clive did was he bought what are known as rotten burrows. He would just go and buy up a burrow and say, okay, I'm, I own this burrow. So he would have a voting right in the parliament. He bought enough rotten boroughs so that he had a controlling interest in not only the, the parliament, but he also bought up the East India Company. So now he owned the East India Company because he was so rich. He, Mir Jafar was made to keep giving him more and more taxes, keep raising it, raising it. At some point, he got tired and got afraid that he was going to be assassinated, and he he abdicated. Clive then put instead of him somebody called Mir Kasim. Kasim, Kasim replaced him, and he told Kasim that he now had to pay him from Mir Jafar. He took two million three hundred. Now he said five million. Wow! At that time, it was a one-time payment of two million three. Now it was a five million payment of silver every year. And he wow. said, he said, how am I going to give you that? He said, I don't care, tax the people. So the people started to get bled from money. In 1762, two years after that, Mir Kasim was so appalled and disturbed by this that he got together with a lot of other Muslim uh, kings around him and attacked the company merchants, East India Company. Clive took that as his opportunity to beat them all in 1764. The British defeated the Mughals once and for all. Clive went to Delhi, New Delhi, uh, Delhi at that time, took over Delhi and then took over the administration of all of India. <laughs> he then therefore inherited the right to tens of millions of rupees by taking over the entire Indian. In 1765, Clyde returned to India to find that all of the people under him, all of the East India Company people were robbing the Indians blind. They were 
and, and his words, I'm going to read them to you. He said, they looted and pillaged the country while Robert Clive, he says, I was in England. Hmm. He said, such a scene, I'm quoting, such a scene of anarchy, confusion, bribery, corruption, and extortion was never seen or heard of in any country but India, nor such fortunes acquired in so unjust and rapacious a manner. That was him saying wow. this about his employees when he had done the same thing. But the reason his employees were doing that is because they saw Robert Clive doing it. Yeah. So in 1765, Clive formed what was what he called the exclusive company. This was 61 of Clive's closest friends, and he got the largest share. And he said the exclusive company could make whatever profit it wanted on tobacco, betel nut, supari, and salt. Here was the salt. All production by anybody else except for the uh, exclusive company was prohibited. Now, this story, if you have if you have been bearing with me for the last 17 minutes, is about salt. And what you will find, I'm giving you a little preview. Many of these things will have to be repeated because I'm going to go into more than one part. It describes a hedge that the British built. Yeah. So if you look at the map of, of India, it is a V-shaped. On the top, at the two points of the widest parts of the V, are the Himalayan mountains. And then the rest of it is a V. So salt comes from the ocean, one of the ways in which salt comes. And it comes from salt mines, or it comes from the earth, our salt lakes even. Um, so what the British did was they created a hedge. The hedge was 2,300 miles long, 12 feet high, 12 feet wide, to go across the entire seacoast of India on the west coast and then up on the east coast. Majority of the world has never heard of this. And it was purely by accident that a person by the name of Roy Moxham heard about this and wrote a book called The Great Hedge of India. Not very well read, not available, but I happened to come across it. Mm. I read it. I was absolutely fascinated. Roy Moxham was a or is. I wrote to him and I said, you know, this was amazing what you did. He was a librarian and he wanted to buy himself a book. He went uh, into Charing Cross, went to a bookstore and he found this book uh, about India and he bought it for 25 pounds. As he was reading through it, very different what something that you or I would do. He saw this one sentence that said the great hedge was on fire and the British soldiers were scurrying around trying to immediately to put it out. So he said, what great hedge? He couldn't hmm. understand. So he researched it. Being in the library, in the London library, he had access to all the books. And he said, I've never heard of a great hedge of India. He looked it up and he couldn't find anything. He then went to the um, records that were the records kept by the Indian Army, the British Army when they were in India. There were nine miles of records of books. And he finally found that the British had created this hedge, which I will go into detail at some future point, but it was 
all across and every so often, every hundred miles or so, they would keep an opening in the hedge. And at that were, uh, it was called a chokey and the soldiers, British soldiers on horseback would be sitting there and anybody that wanted to go from the part where the ocean was into the interior of India would have to pay duty. They would have to be searched to see if they were carrying any salt. And hmm. if they were, they were put in jail uh, or penalized or whipped or hanged. Hmm. Why? So that they wanted to make sure that nobody on the inside of this V could get salt. Now, when you're starved of salt, you die. You get diseased first and you die. That's a whole other story I'll tell you about that I didn't know what happens when you don't eat salt. So the hedge was created and that was, the tax went up and up and up until it became more expensive than gold. <laughs> so that the average person could not afford um, um, salt. So here was the cost of what people made. An agricultural farmer, a laborer in England at that time, earned one pound 50 pence per month, which mm. is 15 rupees. Whereas the Indian farmer only earned one rupee per month, one rupee instead of 15 rupees. So he owned a fraction of what the British person uh, owed. Richard and, and what Clive was doing and his people were they were taking money from India and taking it to England and spending it there, saving it there, buying things over there, which was bleeding the uh, Indian uh, economy. Richard Barwell, a friend of Clive's, earned 400,000 rupees per year, which was a fortune. And by the time he left India and went to England, he took with him six million rupees. And there were hundreds of these people, forgetting about Robert Clive. The East India Company and British and all of Clive's people brought back, by the time the British left, all the wealth had gone from India to um, England. Now, you may say, you know what, this is all Robert Clive doing this, an East India Company, not the British. But don't forget, the British had a hand in it. They knew everything that the Robert Clive was doing. And if you look at the parliamentary debates, they actually, but he controlled, Robert Clive controlled the parliament. The British parliament went along with everything that yeah. Clive was doing, including the salt tax. In 1835, when East India Company's charter came up for renewal, the British government essentially took over and administered India and collecting the two taxes. The two main taxes were land tax and salt tax. And we'll talk about both of these. In 1857, there was the Indian mutiny where a bunch, a lot of Indians got together and, and attacked the British. At that time, the British took over completely and the East India Company was shut down. What the British in the parliament wrote, and I'm quoting here, we consider it too disgraceful and below the dignity of the present situation to allow of such a monopoly, a monopoly on the taxation of salt, a yeah. monopoly of the necessities of life in any hands whatsoever, but more especially in the hands of the English who are possessed of such overruling influence is liable to the greatest abuse in mankind. So in 19, 1767, what happened was Clive left finally for England. Some people in, in, in England uh, had a parliamentary inquiry to say what he has done, has killed so many millions of people. People believed that he had made a pact with the devil and he was evil. 
one of the other things that England has done at that time was they were producing opium from poppy flowers in uh, the northern, northwestern part of, of India um, and exporting the opium to China to make the Chinese become addicts. Are you familiar with this part? Yes, a little bit, yes. Yeah, so Clive had free access to opium. He, after he left India, all the bad things he had done, started developing severe stomach pains. So, and he wasn't very popular in, in England, A, because they were jealous of his extreme wealth, and mm -hmm. B, because he was so rich and, and because he controlled parliament. When he started developing stomach pains, which were incurable, he started taking opium. And he started taking larger and larger quantities of opium, became a drug addict. In 1774, he was only 49, and even though he had been at one point the richest man in England, by that time he spent a lot of his money on drugs, and he died by cutting his own throat with a rusty penknife. Okay. Oh, Committed suicide, cutting his throat with a penknife, and he was buried in an unmarked grave. So, what I'll be talking about next time. Oh, I want to give you the names of some of the books. One is The Great Hedge of India by Roy Moxham. The other is many articles that you should look at in terms of what the British did to India. One of the authors is Omar Aziz, A-Z-I-Z. -Z. And uh, this is very, very good. It, uh, the one that I mentioned before was The Finances and Public Works of India by Sir John Strachey and Richard Strachey. This was written in uh, 1881. It gives the entire finances and public works of India, all the numbers, including the money that was taken from the Indians between 1869 and 1881. Hmm. And this, he describes in here, uh, and I'll read this, uh, to secure the levy of a duty on salt, there grew up gradually a monstrous system to which it would be almost impossible to find a parallel in any tolerably civilized country. Hmm. A customs line was established, which stretched across the whole of India, which in 1869 extended from the river Indus to the Mahanadi in Madras, a distance of 2,300 miles, and it was guarded by nearly 12,000 men. It would have stretched from London to Constantinople, Constantinople is the old name for Istanbul. Yes. The hedge would have stretched from London to Constantinople, and it consisted principally of an immense, impenetrable hedge of thorny trees and bushes. So the bush, as it's described in these records, it, it's given the British were one thing they were was very detailed, and they kept detailed roads, notes of what the hedge uh, should be like. And if you read it, they have five different kinds of uh, bushes, trees, etc., that combine together to form this big hedge 12 feet high through which not even a mouse could go through. <laughs> not even a mouse could go through that uh, hedge because there was no room. It was so packed. So no smugglers could actually go through their own, and they couldn't jump over a 12-foot high hedge, which was 12 feet wide. They could only go through those areas where the British on horseback uh, patrolled it, and they those soldiers 
took such advantage of people going through, even honest people. There was sexual attacks on the women going through. There was bribery. There was cheating. There was theft. If they found that somebody was going with jewelry, they just take the jewelry and yeah. say, if you if the husband fought it or the woman fought it, they would be whipped or hanged. Nobody would question uh, what a British soldier did. And the majority of these people were were villagers. So. Um, let me stop here and then we can take up part two next time so I can tell you some more details of what happened and what, what led to these many deaths. Lou, well, any comments, any questions? Yeah, I, ha I have a question or two here. So here in the West, of course, in the United States, we're familiar with the colonization of, of England and, and uh, their attitude towards the rest of the world and things like that. But we always saw it as kind of a military thing. The takeover of India seemed more economic than military. Absolutely. So here's the key. The East India Company, when it was founded by Queen Elizabeth I in 1600, she said that as long as it is not a Christian nation, any nation that is not a Christian nation, you are at liberty to convert them to Christianity, number one. You can use your own army, you can create your own army, your own navy, and you can fight them, and you are your own master. We don't have to dictate or tell you anything. So when they first went there, the East India Company was very mild-mannered and just basically did trading. The Indians were pretty powerful in themselves. They had many kingdoms, many kings with large armies. Mm -hmm. um, but the British at that time didn't have to fight the first mill. And there was no reason to fight because the Indians hadn't done anything. Usually you take over a country because they're doing something unjust. Right. The Indians had never warred with any country. They haven't. They were their only fault was they were rich, extremely rich, very wealthy. So you're right. There was no reason for it. But once there, Robert Clive created a very large army, became militaristically powerful and took over the kingdoms from the Nawabs and the kings. And then when the British saw this, then the British actually started sending reinforcements as of the early 1800s. And then the British sent a large contingent of the army there uh, and basically controlled it without actually having a war. Right. The Indians that they then hired from there were put into the British army and sent off to fight the uh, World War II. And just to be clear on the East Indian Company, East India Company or the East Indian Trading Company, as I knew it, it wasn't part of the English government. It, was, it almost sounds like they were a privateering corporation. Yes, it was yeah. a private company chartered by Queen Elizabeth. And it's, it, it, they were working as an arm of the British government because the British said, we'll let you go there and we'll support you in what, whatever way you, we can and you need. Um, but you must give us a percentage of the uh, profits that you make. And the British would basically turn a blind eye to whatever the East India Company did in countries that were uh, not white and not Christian. They're a company put together to go pillage the rest of the world, the non-Christian right. world. Yeah. And then in 1835, I think I'd said, um, uh, that was when the British said, oh, I'm sorry, 1857, after the mutiny is when the British government said, we're taking over completely. Are there remnants of this great hedge still? <laughs> the book says he spent 
many years going from place to place where they were where this hedge was without proper tending to it without it watering it the heat gets to be like 115 degrees and the british took great care to keep this hedge alive but after the british left the indians basically just tore it down number one and number two didn't take care of it so he found some areas where he took photographs but other than that the majority of the hedge was gone most people that he went around looking for and asking about it didn't even know what the, what he was talking about and i'm fascinated for the rest of the story here tell people where people can get in touch with us yes please I, this story has to be spread friends it has to be brought to uh, the attention of higher high people in attorneys journalists uh, governments to do something about it please write to me if you can suggest anything to arise arjuna a r i s e a r j u n a arise arjuna at gmail.com i'd really appreciate it thank you